What's up, everyone? Hope everyone's doing well. I'm your growth marketing host, Lee Moskowitz, bringing you another episode of the Sassiest Podcast for B2B. Today, I'm chatting with Ashley Early from roles with big players like Okta and Mattermark to working with startups. Ashley brings a wealth of sales knowledge. She describes herself as the other sales coach, meaning she rejects cookie-cutter methodologies and focuses on the intersection of product, people, and industry. Ashley's coaching isn't just about hitting quotas, it's a journey to your fullest potential. She creates a safe space for creativity, honesty, and skill growth, ensuring clients reach a new heights. And don't miss the chaos on Across the Pond and Over the Rainbow, where Ashley and Evan Patterson discuss life lessons, professional weirdness, and plenty of unhinged hilarity. Get ready for another sassy episode of Lead to B. Hi. Welcome. Welcome to Lead to B. Thanks for having me. It's going to yeah, be fun. Thanks. We've talked so much on LinkedIn and I'm like, how have I not had you on yet? And I know. Like, you literally messaged me and said that. I was like, oh, you're right. Shoot. How are, <laughs> we, how are we so bad at this? Like, we're professionals. Mm. We should be better. Yes. But you are here now and and that's what what matters and so I, I love going right in because I don't like doing like the whole, how did you get here? I mean, I do that sometimes, but, yeah. and, and we'll do that in a different way, but mm-hmm. you've branded yourself as the other sales coach. Where did that, where did that title come from? What inspired that? And how does that stand out from the crowd? What does that mean? It, it comes from a few different things bluntly in my childhood and very specifically, it started with my name. Ashley is the most common female name for women born in the 80s. So when I grew up, there were always several Ashleys in every activity, every class I went to. And I was, in every case, the other. I feel like your name, though, isn't the most popular spelling of it. You at least No, that's that. the whole point. It's one of the less popular spellings. So I spell oh, okay. it. I cut you off. Um, I'm such a man. Exactly. So everyone else was A-S-H-L-E-Y. I was A-S-H-L-E-I-G-H. I was the other one. So combine that with the fact that we moved reasonably frequently, not military, just tech. So I was the new kid a lot. So I would go into these situations where I'm naturally sassy. I'm naturally fairly quick-witted, which means I don't take people's BS and I will call it out even when it ends up getting me beat up and bullied. And having the name and then also liking a lot of things that were really nerdy. I was into theater. I was into orchestra. I was in choirs. I read all the science fiction as well as did all of the like academic pursuits. So I actually had teachers who called me Hermione. I was that obnoxious actually, even as a kid. Well, we actually, my teachers called me Hermione because they were doing this so long ago, the movies hadn't come out yet. But I hope they weren't English teachers that called you that. Yeah, it was an English teacher that called me that. The only English teacher who I corrected her corrections of me, which was fun. So <laughs> I probably earned that title. But I always felt like an other. I, I really struggled feeling like I'd found my people, found my calling, found a place where I was happy and safe. And I think that's one of the reasons why in my career, I've done so much work with the LGBTQ plus community, with uh, minority communities, with underrepresented communities, because I've always felt underrepresented, unseen in various forms, even though I had an incredible amount of privilege and stuff like that. But I've always felt very othered in a lot of ways. And so then when I came into actually doing my career, I noticed I myself doing things differently than everybody else in a lot of ways. So leaning on, for example, something as simple as very early in my SDR career, I basically taught myself Salesforce, not because 
I had to, but because I realized that I hated doing crazy high volume dialing. So I needed to find a way to build better lists. So I got really good at Salesforce, built myself incredible lists and could get the same results with half the dials. And then all of a sudden I was like, well, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm just using the CRM and everyone else is like, what? You can pull those reports? So I just think about things differently in a lot of ways. So I kind of leaned into that as one of the things I do. And I encourage a lot of my coaching clients to do is lean into what makes you different because that's probably a strength that you can work with and that you can build to your advantage. So that's something kind of I've always done. And it's a little bit tongue in cheek. It's also tongue in cheek because when I, I kind of got into personal branding and stuff like that with my podcast, The Other Side of Sales, which has now since stopped, it's become, we've got a new podcast called Across the Pond Over the Rainbow with Evan. But Other Side of Sales was originally called Other Side of Sales specifically kind of because of that same thing. My original co-host and I, Casey Jones, were both invited to be a part of this list of like 100 sales and marketing leaders. And we both declined to be on it for the same reason, which was, wait, why are we the only women on here? <laughs> and when we responded to this person and said, hey, I'm not comfortable. There aren't enough women and people of color on this list. The person's like, oh, well, he just had nothing but excuses. And we were like, well, screw that. We'll make our own list of awesome people with diversity mm -hmm. and actual practitioners, not just the same people. And that's kind of how other came up there was like, well, fine, we're going to make the other list because I think the other list is cooler. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of stuck. And now it's a thing. So long so, answer. I mean, yeah, no, I, I love that. So one JK Rowling scandal noted, obviously. I but know. JK absolutely gutted. So but, JK yeah. Rowling scandal noted, but like she literally added the part to the fourth book, I think it was, on how like she, she phonetically spelled out Hermione. Yeah. I, I think, I don't know if she was talking to Victor Crumb or but something like that. So how to say that is Harry Potter too. I don't remember because I was on, on I was waiting to say Harry Potter. But but yeah, so the other thing is how did you fall into coaching? Because you, you work in sales yeah. roles. You, you you mentioned the SVR, you talked about ACE, some AE stuff. How did you get into oh I, I I like the coaching part of it the best? I I've always been a coach. Like I I can't help it. Part of it's I like telling people what to do. Bluntly. I, I will acknowledge that. But it the moment I got into leadership roles, I found that's where a lot of the success really happened was the people who I was investing time in performed better. So the more I could effectively invest my time in my people, the better they did. And after being in leadership for quite a while, I needed a little bit of a break. So I started working with a company called Vendition. And Vendition does a lot of great work around helping people from non-traditional backgrounds break into tech sales. And one of the things they offer is mentorship alongside an internship, basically. So you get paid a living wage. It's not an income share agreement, non-spawn for Vendition, but I do really appreciate what they do. But I worked as one of their mentors. So I, for almost two years, spent 40 hours a week on the phone with people early in their careers, just helping them get through the first three months on it as an SDR job. And I loved it. It was so much fun. So then when that journey ended, I moved into consulting. And now that's still probably the majority, I'd say about 70% of what I do right now is consulting. But there will always be a coaching component to what I do. And I always have five to six coaching clients that I'm working with at any given point because th that's where the rubber meets the road, right? It's one thing to talk about theory and here's, here's the metrics you should be hitting and here's all this stuff and here's how to think about strategy. But then it's like, okay, but you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. That's where coaching lives. And it's that combination of, okay, what's really happening combined with let's talk about the personal stuff that 
hold you back and that gets in there. And I, I, one of the things I am very clear with, with especially my private coaching clients is I basically don't work with people who aren't actively working with a therapist. Oh, (laughs) I am not a therapist and this stuff gets personal. And I, you know, we don't want to, you know, we're going to trigger things and we're going to dive into stuff that I'm not equipped to touch Mm -hmm. on. And I want to make sure you've got proper support for that. When I'm doing stuff with corporate clients, stuff like that, that's not necessarily necessary. When people come to me one-on-one, it's like, let's yeah. make sure you're okay. Cause like, it's going to get really, not like it's going to get personal, but it it does. It's not just about time management. It's about, okay, let's talk about what's really holding you back. Why is this difficult? Why are you judging yourself here? Yeah. So that's, that's like the more personal development coaching yeah. aspect of it. So when it comes to to sales, I'm mean, the marketer side. I've worked very closely with sales, probably closer than a lot of marketers. But there is, there's, to me, there's always been like sales coaching, sales training, sales enablement. What are the differences between those three things? Yeah. Uh, do they overlap? Are they the same thing? Like, so sales enablement, I understand that it's a, it's a function, but a lot of it comes and matches with coaching. It does. So it... So it's definitely like a Venn diagram where you've got like things kind of overlapping in various ways. It's they're definitely not circles. So coaching is the big thing with coaching is coaching's one to one and it's focused on typically skill development. So typically when you're doing coaching, it's with a specific goal in mind. Mm-hmm. So I'm coaching around cold calling, emailing, closing, time management, pipeline strategy, something like that. Okay. Enablement can include coaching. But generally, is also working on a systemic level to ensure that everyone has the skills necessary to get their job. So that's done on a one-to-many scale. So that's kind of the biggest difference. But the two big differences between enablement and coaching are enablement is one-to-many, and it's focusing on systems to do that instead of direct one-to-one work. Training is also one-to-many, but with hyper-specific skill goals. Training can also be process-based. And a lot of what sales training is, is process-based. So it's not, Hey, let's go through this. It's, Hey, let's, we're going to talk about how to handle your MQLs properly. Not just like properly, but how we handle MQLs or here, we're going to have a training on here's how we do messaging or here's how we are going to handle follow-up. So it's more process and one-to-many, but from a kind of very hyper-specific training. And that's why, and bluntly, that's why a lot of sales training sucks is because they don't get specific enough with the objectives as they really need to. It's like when you enter Mm -hmm. into an hour or two of sales training, you should know like, okay, by the end of the session. And that's why we do this. Like if good training, it feels really silly. We'll start with like, by the end of the session, you'll know how to do one, two, three, four, five. Right. And at the end, you should walk out knowing one, two, three, four, five, if you've got a good trainer. So then where does sales enablement come into this whole play? So enablement, you could think of Enablement can coordinate coaching and training and can deliver coaching and training, but they're kind of quarterbacking it. So a lot of sales enablement professionals will hire third parties to come in and handle some or all of that. So Mm -hmm. a lot of sales enablement people, and that's where a lot of sales enablement people get set up to fail is because they're hired and told, do all of these things. And they're like, I literally don't have the hours in the day. I can do the training, but training needs to be followed up with a couple hours of coaching. And if we've got a hundred sales reps, I mean, how we've got a hundred sales reps. How am I supposed to do that? Oh, well, you're supposed to tell the managers how to do coaching. Okay. So now I've got more training. I need to to train the reps. I need to train the managers how to monitor the reps. And then I need to go like confirm. 
So sales enablement people, I have deep respect because their biggest struggle, I think right now is setting expectations around what they can and can't do and then getting budget to properly support the things that need to be outsourced. So be kind to your sales enablement people. They are genuinely trying, yeah. but they've got, they've got some really, they're the equivalent, sales enablement people are like the equivalent of like marketing operations in the sense that like everything kind of runs through them. They're consistently overbooked and they're doing their dang best, but like they're always going to be a little bit behind. So just be kind, buy them coffee, maybe some chocolate. <laughs> they're getting there. Yeah. I think a big part of, I mean, at least I can speak from the mops part. You'll tell me on the nailman side, but so much of marketing ops is reactive. And yeah. like, we want to be working on these processes and architectural stuff. But so many times it's like, oh, like this is broken or this person needs this list or so it's a very reactive and yeah. like, it becomes less of a, a function and more of a task taking service. Yeah. And honestly, I think, I think sales enablement is similar and it's similar specifically in the sense that when it's done right, it's not reactive, but the way that it's set up in most companies, it ends up being reactive. So marketing ops and sales enablement are the same. I think in the sense that like all things being equal, ideally they know in advance, Hey, here are the challenges that are going to come up. We're going to block time to handle this. We know you're deploying this thing this day. So you're probably going to get a couple tickets, but let's block time. So you're okay. And you're ready for that. Sales enablement should be the same. Hey, we know we've got this new campaign launching. We know the team's going to need two months to get training ready. And then they're going to need a little bit of spot training this week to make sure they're all set to go. But that, especially in startup land, that don't happen. And then mm -hmm. you're scrambling and crazy reactive. And the more reactive you get, the longer it takes to get back ahead of the wagon again. So it's... Yeah. Yeah, very, very similar in that way. And especially it gets doubly worse because you're serving three, four, five masters. So marketing ops is dealing with sales to make sure sales is dealing with stuff. They're dealing with customer success. They're dealing with actual ops, ops on the back end, potentially product if you're dealing with a PLG function. Sales enablement is stuck dealing with sales, with the handoffs between the various sales teams, with marketing, with product to make sure they've got the support for all the products that are going. I, I cannot tell you how many times in the past six months, one of my friends in enablement has been like, guess what? Apparently there was a product launch yesterday and no one told me. Wow. And I love that because it is, and I love that because I know marketing ops probably had the same thing happen to them. Like, oh yeah, we told the head of marketing. is like, well, Mark, head of marketing didn't tell me. So can you please are just tell me Are these big, directly? big companies or like startups too? Sometimes some big, some smaller. So some are like, they're skipping, like they told the top, it didn't filter down. And some are just product just ran at yeah. a small startup and forgot. Oh yeah, we probably should tell sales, shouldn't we? It's like, <laughs> it, it, it's one of those things where like our reputation backfires on us as sales professionals. People think, oh, don't tell sales until it's out. Don't tell sales until it's out because they'll start selling it to clients. One, no sales, no sales professional is going to even mention a feature or product that is not like, two minutes from being released because yeah. we're good salespeople under promise over deliver. We're not even going to bring it up. That's a stereotype from the eighties. And if you meet someone who's doing that, they're an idiot, but it works against us because then product and somebody like, Oh, we don't want to tell sales yet. It's like, we need a minute to learn so we can talk about it effectively. I've, I've actually had points when I worked at some of the companies you mentioned, where I jumped on a call and they asked me about something that I hadn't been told about, but we, our CEO was on Bloomberg. <laughs> so like, I look like an idiot now because I didn't know we were doing this. What? Google it quickly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, totally know what's happening 
there. I mean, well, y- your salespeople want to know about it because they're going to be asked about it if it's public. They want to be prepared. I don't. Why wouldn't you? You tell like what? What's so like? He- here's what I would do with the product launches and new, new releases. We wouldn't like tell all, all the sales team every step of the way, maybe, but we'd be like, hey, tomorrow or next week, we are going to be launching this. Here is the press release. And then we'd have a little like media kit, I'll call it, where yeah. it's like, here's your own social post. You can say here are the talking points. Yeah, but, so, uh, That's weird. It's yeah. And it's it's such a simple thing. And honestly, especially if you've been involved in any facet of this like building that media kit for sales should take you no more than five minutes right it's like here's the press release here's a social post here's the suggested line here's the company line and also i will say uh do also tell us what we can't say a lot of people like oh we don't want to say that because they'll say no i'm not the best person to ask about what you can't say i'm i'm a huge believer but having gone through a couple ipos and stuff like tell people what they can't say (laughs) Like, if you don't tell them you can't say this, then mm-hmm. how are you? It's a, it's a weird thing, but I talked with several people like, oh, I can't, I don't want to tell them not to say this because by telling them not to say it, they'll say it anyway on accident. It's like, no, they're far more likely to say it on accident if you don't tell them. So Adam, yeah. like, you can say this, do not say this. Uh, a really good example, I spent a lot of time in CyberSec. We used to get a little, and I don't want to say which company did this, but it was really smart. They used to give us breach alerts. So anytime someone got breached, we get a little breach alert from our research team within 48 hours. But it would basically be like, here's what happened. Like, here's the company that got breached. Here's what happened. Here's what you can say about it. Here's what you can't say about it. And the can't say was typically stuff like never say we would have prevented this unless like we were Mm -hmm. absolutely certain we could have because you don't want to make false promises. Never say mention a competitor that was present in that account. Like we never, we're never going to go in there and say, oh, did you hear the ABC got breached? Yeah, it's because they used so-and-so competitor because that just makes everyone look stupid. Yeah. But like having specific things like that was really, really helpful for us. And like it took no time at all to do, but it, it helps make sure everyone's uniformly on the same page. So anytime something like that happens, like it's, it's, too, it's five minutes. It's not use chat GPT. It is right. not that hard. Well, don't do that, but you can. If you really have no other options, like, like have, have ChatGPT do an outline for you. Yeah, yeah. if nothing else, have ChatGPT do the outline and then just fill it in. Or hire me or hire yeah, Ashley. Hire, or, and, hire, or hire us. We will, we will right. happily tell you. Like, <laughs> so switching to, to the feedback part of coaching, a big part of what I, I've read and heard you emphasize before is, is giving personalized feedback. Yeah. But giving feedback is, is really hard to do as somebody who's managed people, as somebody who is managed, again, not in the sales capacity, but it's something I've, I've hit on a number of episodes that it's hard to give good feedback to people. Yes. How do you do that? Um, okay, I have to, I, I've, got a, I've got an acronym because there's an acronym for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, COIN, C-O-I-N. So really quick, you can Google it. But really quickly, this is the structure. And I learned the structure working with a company in France called Numa. They're another company I do some training with. They do a lot of management training and skills and stuff like that. I love them. But they um, prioritize a method called COIN, which is publicly available. But I love COIN because it's just a really quick, easy framework to ensure that the feedback that you're giving is specifically going to be focused on changing or reinforcing a behavior, which is really important. It's not just about like, oh, here's the outcome. No, it's the behavior. So focus on the Mm -hmm. behavior, not the outcome. 
And two, it helps you deliver it in a way that the other person is most likely not going to get defensive about. So really quickly, C stands for context. So the who, so the who and the what, the who, what, when, right? So where were you? What happened? Kind of dates and times. Observations, exactly what happened. So for example, if someone looks like they're falling asleep in a meeting, hey, I noticed last Thursday in the team meeting, last Thursday team meeting, context, observations, your eyelids looked like they were closing and drooping a lot and your head bobbed a couple times, making it look like you were falling asleep. Impact, C-O-I, impact. That might've given the impression to the client that this meeting wasn't valuable or that you were boring them. I don't think that's the experience we wanna have for our, for our customers. Then next steps. First of all, are you okay? Is there anything we can do to make sure this doesn't happen in the future? Mm -hmm. So going straight through kind of that C-O-I-N helps hold me accountable to making sure I'm super fact-based because I'm fact-based, you're kind of taking the emotion out of it and I'm being very specific. I'm not saying, hey, you look tired. I wasn't tired. What are you talking about? I wasn't falling. <laughs> you're really, okay, I saw your eyes drooping and your head not off. Kind of can't deny that. And then going from there. Then, then orienting immediately into next steps. Okay, what can we do to change this? How can we open this into a conversation? That's what I do. I will say this. I use that a lot. My husband has forbidden me from using it around him because I do it so much. So that, well, I, that's a big yeah. thing for me. <laughs> I, well, I can get that. Your husband doesn't want you to be like, stop using your, your no, he's sales like, stop towers coaching. on me. Stop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, fine. Marriage. So I, I've never heard coin before. I love that. And no. I'll, I'll butcher summarize it. But like you're you're giving people the why, meaning you're not just like you're asking why am I giving this person feedback? Why am I saying it to this person? Yeah. You need so if you're telling someone feedback, it's because they need to change something. There needs to be a why. The, well, it's, the not just the, it, it's not just the why. It's the it's the combination of what exactly happened. Mm -hmm. So what definitively cannot be disputed has happened, combined with why is it important? And that that why is it important? is going to vary slightly person to person. So for example, that situation where I talked about someone might be falling asleep on a call. I might, if someone is super career motivated, hyper ambitious, they're going for a promotion, I might go in there and say, hey, the impact of that is you don't present a very professional and dedicated persona. And if a VP had been sitting on that call, they might hesitate to put your name forward in the next promotion process. I want to help you get there. So let's talk about how we can fix it. So you also nice. change the why a little bit depending on the person's personality and goals. Um, that also helps, again, avoid deferring into like, oh, well, you just don't understand me. Oh, it's just the way I am. Right. Um, and it also helps ensure I'm eliminating a lot of my own biases. Right. So I, I'm never going to forget one of the worst pieces of feedback anyone ever gave me was I was struggling. I was struggling with conversion rates on cold calls. And I went to my boss and said, what can I do? And he said, smile more. Ugh. And I was like, are you kidding me? Are you Art Arenberg? Yeah, I, the, it, this was a different time. But well, it was it, a woman thing, I know. It was a woman. It, I don't I think it was less a woman thing. And honestly, this particular manager honestly had nothing else to give me. And so he gave it as a tip. But then it turned into a thing where every time he walked by my cube, he'd be like, Oh my God. Um, <laughs> it was, I find that especially amusing given, and everyone from New York City will appreciate this. I'm calling New York City proper. If I call someone in New York City, hi, it's Ashley Early calling from ABC, they're going to hang up on me immediately. Mm -hmm. Right? As a Jada like, New Yorker, I can confirm this. Right? I'm talking to New York. It's, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I want. Let's go. 
we're direct, we're dropping the low tone, we're using a slightly faster speech pattern to match who I'm talking to. Like smiling was not a good tip. And I think if he had used coin, he would have realized this isn't actually feedback, this is a tip. Yes. So that's the difference. Again, it comes back to holds me accountable to what's the behavior I'm trying to change or reinforce. The other thing, would he have given that same advice to a man? No, I don't more? think he would have. No, he would I, not. There have. absolutely was a bit of sexism there. That person I know is not a consciously sexist person. Right. Um, I, I, that's why I say I think that was just he didn't have anything else to give me in that point. He was like, smile yeah. more. I've read that okay. that can help. Which is true. People can hear when you're smiling, but that isn't necessarily the right thing for cold calls in every situation. Yeah. But, yeah. So again, I don't, I'm not calling him misogynist. Oh, no. But, but yeah, in generally telling someone to smile more in this day and age is pretty generally going to be a bit misogynist. Yeah. So I, and this this is important with feedback, too, because there there's a few elements. So and someone you work with marginalized groups, so you'll you'll be great to talk about this. But so I've seen scenarios where it's that situation. Maybe it's, it's unconscious bias. Maybe it is conscious bias where somebody gives feedback to somebody who is who's I'm sorry, a white guy can give feedback to somebody. Yeah. Somebody who's going to, someone in one place will give feedback and say something that they wouldn't say to another gender, another race, yeah. another sexual orientation. So oh, that's one problem. The other is on the flip side, actually, where people are so afraid of maybe saying the wrong that thing. That they don't give anything. Which is, which is so detrimental to somebody's career because even if it's coming from, I'll say, a, a good place, if you're going to give feedback to somebody you're more comfortable talking to for whatever reason, and you're not going to give it to that group of people that you don't feel it's comfortable talking to, that's the systematic part of one group always having that advantage. Yeah. And this is, this is really tricky on a lot of different levels because there's one, a certain amount where as a leader, you must always be, I think one of the most important things for any, any revenue professional in any roles, you need to have a certain amount of self-awareness and self-introspection consistently. Not just because of unconscious bias, but because that's how you grow, period. That said, one of the things, especially when unconscious bias comes in, is it comes in with hiring. So if you're hiring people, you should hire people that do challenge you, that challenge your perspective, that challenge your communication style, not in an aggressive, you need to change way, but in a, this is a stretch. You should always have a little bit of a stretcher team. You should have people on your team that challenge you to be better. That's just a mark of a good manager, period, in my opinion. That said, it's hard. <laughs> I've managed plenty of people who, in Tim, gosh, my, the first team I ever built from scratch, I ramped from, I was a new office and I got, I hired 12 people in like eight months and ramped the team from nothing. And of those like 12 people, I think eight of them were at least 10 years older than I was. You want to talk about intimidating. It's being a 20-something-year-old woman going into mm -hmm. a meeting and giving performance feedback to someone in their 40s. Like, yeah. it's... I mean, th those were the days I broke out my... <laughs> especially when I worked in an office, I my, my team realized they could tell my confidence levels by the height of my heel. Because <laughs> if, I was, if I was scared, I would break out my five-inch heels just to have that little bit of like, nope. And it wasn't a height thing. It was that I needed to feel like I knew what I was doing. Yeah. Because it's a thing. So that's definitely part of it. And I think one is owning that challenge. But two, it's also 
challenging yourself, if it's like, hey, I want to tell them something, ooh, I don't know how they're going to take it. First question has to be, okay, why am I hesitating? Right. Is this a me thing? Is this a them thing? If it's a me thing, let's fix it. If it's a them thing, now you've got feedback about feedback. And yes, giving feedback about how people give feedback is essential because we got to go a little meta. But it's it's a really tricky thing. And if you're struggling, I, I've talked to specifically, I have several friends who are, who are um, especially black in corporate America. And a lot of them are now asking bosses when they're going in a meeting with white bosses, they're having these conversations in the interviews around how are you going to give me feedback? Are you comfortable giving me feedback? Because mm-hmm. I need to grow and I need to know that you're going to tell me when I need to change something. And I respect the hell out of them for doing that. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I've done the same thing several times when I've gone into environments that are 90% or 100% male. I'm like, can y'all handle this? Because like, I don't need you being like, I can't punch a woman. If I mess up, I need you to tell me so I can fix it. Uh-huh. And I think that's part of it too. And that's something I really appreciate. I think it's changed in the workforce, especially I think since COVID, is we're having a lot more of these harder, more direct conversations around, hey, like we, if we can't communicate, we can't really work together. And leaders have to own that. But I think a lot of the individuals too are being being more abrupt with like, no, like I need to hear this, please give this to me, is really helping drive those conversations and drive that growth at a leadership level too. Right. Because if you're, yes, being offensive is that is that far end of it, but the other end of it is withholding. And yes, that... and that's just as damaging, if not, right. it's just as damaging, period. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I mean, there's a reason we say silence is violence. This is just another form of that. I mean, and there's a reason mm-hmm. why, I mean, I can think of this in a million different ways when it comes to managing businesses, taxes, networking. There's a million different things that a lot of these underrepresented groups don't get access to. It's why mentorship is so incredibly important. We're now seeing studies, and I'm, I apologize, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I'll go try and find some that found like when a woman or a person of color or a member of the LGBTQ community has an active mentor for at least three years, they make something like 150K more over those years than people who don't because you have access to that information, right? It's not just support. It's, oh, well, here's how you can handle that. Here's how you can work around this. It's, it's so, 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 so crucial, so critical and crucial. Mm-hmm. So switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about selling and social. So organic social, social outreach, so I come from a point where I, I'm a mops and demand gen guy. I am so much about lead sourcing, attribution, UTM parameters, tracking everything. But when it comes to social, especially with, with startups and SaaS these days, yeah. so much of that selling is happening on social through LinkedIn posts, one-to-one engagement, stuff like that. That is hard to track. And I'm saying this yeah. as an attribution guy. From the sales perspective, how do you recommend successfully tracking that or proving I'm a salesperson? I did a ton of work on social here. I deserve the recognition or. Yeah. One, hire me to come in and build the systems to tell you. <laughs> yes, exactly hire. To do that. But at a broad level, it comes into you're not capturing enough of the funnel. And what I mean by that is we think of the funnel as being, you know, kind of the classic kind of going through the step by step here. Social starts four layers before that you're not capturing enough of the funnel. So you need to start capturing the moment like people are, like if you use more older terms, 
we used to talk about IP addresses coming to the website, right? Unknown IP addresses. We're starting there, but because of LinkedIn, we know their name, right? Mm -hmm. So it starts with, boom, we now know you exist. Then it's, have we connected with you? Then it's, have you engaged with any of our posts? Then it's, are we confident you know what we're doing because you've either liked a post that communicates what we're doing or because I've had a conversation with you where we know what we're doing. But you track all that through, it's, it's manual as heck. It's really brutal, not gonna lie. I don't know of a great tool that does this. Um, I know Surf, S-U-R-F-E, has a really great CRM connector that I love, shout out to them non-spawn, but would not be mad about it. I use useaware, so useaware.co. I use them to make sure that I'm commenting and engaging on everything properly, and it's helping me find the right post to comment and engage on with my prospects. That's fantastic. But in terms of attribution and everything you're talking about, it really comes down to being honest about, okay, where are they in like this awareness process? And then yes. also, what, what have we done and where? So that means I'm running a ton of micro experiments. So I'm not an ops person. I'm a salesperson who has forced herself to learn ops because that was the, I do not have a personality that people can't say no to. People, people don't buy from me because I have this, oh my God, I'm so infectious. Everyone loves me. People buy from me because <laughs> I harass them into buying in the best, most effective, respectful way possible. And I do that by basically sciencing, like anyone who's a sci-fi nerd, if you've ever read The Martian, I science the shit out of sales. So I'm running a million different micro campaigns. And I did this for years and I started hanging out with marketers. They're like, we do this shit all the time. Like, oh, well, that's good to know that I'm just doing what another department did. So do it's you a know how to plant potatoes using yes. very few resources. I know, God, I, I am not a botanist. I, I am an amateur like house garden person because I don't think you can survive 2020 without picking up some weird hobbies. Although I will say like my like gardening is... I really enjoy, I don't know if you can see those, but those are carnivorous plants. So that's kind Ooh. of my, my thing is I love do, carnivorous plants because they're, they're kind so of ruthless. Do they eat the insects that like come into your, nice. Yep. Okay. So, I mean, pro tip, if you're interested in this at all, they're not that hard to care for. They have a really bad reputation, but they're not bad. But Drosera, Venus flytraps, and sundews will all eat mosquitoes. And I hate mosquitoes. And I live in the Netherlands which has a lot of water and canals, which means we have a lot of mosquitoes. So I have a lot of those in my house. Nepenthes don't eat mosquitoes. They'll eat bigger things. So I'll occasionally get them like a mealworm or something, but they're really fine off air and some filtered water. I see, my, my head is just playing Little Shop of Horrors ever since you said carnivorous oh, plants. So. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, all the time. Did a lot. I actually don't like Venus flytraps that much. But, and they don't, I mean, I have a chonky Venus flytrap where the traps are about that big, but like that's about as big as they get versus what I just showed you, the Nepenthes. Those can get big enough for like mice and rats to fall into and drown in like Burma and stuff. I, I love them. They're fascinating. Well, it's time to go into our segment, Spill the Tea with Lee. That's right. This is the sassiest podcast for B2B and it's going to get juicy. All right. So first question is going to be, you, you just mentioned it, the Netherlands. I won't have you maybe go into the details. Oh, you can if you want to, but spill the details on the cultural shock or differences or whatever. I, I have to imagine going to the yeah. Netherlands. And I know you did this move during COVID as well, yeah, right? Because I'm insane. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about that. I'm really excited. Actually, our three-year anniversary in the Netherlands is January 9th. So, woo, that's exciting. Biggest cultural differences. I'll say the two biggest things, three biggest things, three biggest things. One, 
bikes. The stereotypes are all true. You bike everywhere. Everyone has bikes. It's a thing. It's delightful. And because everyone does it, it's actually ridiculously safe. Like there are protected bike lines everywhere. And because everyone bikes, even when you're in a car, the cars know to look for bikes. So unless you're in like downtown Amsterdam, which is only unsafe because tourists are idiots, like it's fantastic. I love it. Two, cultural shift. The Dutch made a ton of their money historically on the spice trade. However, they never learned how to cook with any of these things. And their food (laughs) is the blandest thing you'll ever see. So if anyone wants to send care packages, please send Indian and Mexican spices because I cannot find either of that here at all. And I, one of my friends had the best answer for this. One of my Dutch friends had the best answer for this. She's like, well, you know the rule. You never get high on your own supply. And I'm like, that's my... So that's the thing. The third thing I will say about kind of culture shift is the Dutch reputation for being direct is absolutely true. And I love it. So it's less a cultural shock and more culture validation. Like I've never been someone who, like if someone is doing something wrong or something's rough or something like that, I'll tell them. I'd rather just be kind of like, hey, like it's, it's blunt as a form of kindness. But that means like, for example, I'm laughing, this, this might be oversharing, but we're being sassy. I use an implanted form of birth control. I've got it swapped out in the States a couple times, both times like, well, we're going to numb it up, but it won't really hurt that much. You should just feel some tugging. I come in here and he's like, I'm going to numb it. It's still probably going to hurt. I need you to hold still. And I'm like, thank you. Just tell me it's going to hurt. And I know I can brace myself and we're fine. No big deal. Well, naturally, I have to ask about the health insurance differences now. The, one of the biggest reasons we moved to the Netherlands was because of healthcare costs. My husband and I both have some health conditions, but moving here because of the amount we're saving because of the nationalized private insurance they got here, um, we're saving about, even with extra taxes, we're saving net about $25,000 a year. See, and I'm going to try not to know my one rant, but like, this is why we use a term third world country. That's what the U.S. is if we don't have health insurance oh, like this. this. Is, it's I've insane. Gotten ten, I've gotten 10 free drinks at bars. This is my favorite, like, scam a drink out of someone is because I have a screenshot of it so I can prove it. I'll ask them to, I'll ask them to guess how much I was paying for health insurance a month in the U.S. before we left. And they, and I say, if you can get, I say, basically, look, if you, if you go over or you get within 200 bucks, you don't have to buy me a drink. And I've right, got like let, 10 drinks out of that because they've I always guessed you a drink. And they're, they're I so want... horrified. Like, how? That's, that's insane. That's not fair. I'm like, I know. That's why I'm here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a thing. I want to say like 600 a month. 15. Wow. Okay. I, what I don't tell them, and this is cheating slightly, is that was Cobra. But like, okay. because of our health conditions, we didn't have a choice, but basically buy right. the highest tier. So I was like, right. <laughs> this is, we don't have a choice. So mm-hmm. it was that, or it would have been, it was 1500 a month plus an additional grand or so every month for prescriptions and everything else. Or it would have been about five grand a month, completely out of pocket. A so, lot. Yeah. A, a lot better health insurance and a lot fewer yeah. shootings. <laughs> yeah, I actually my my the town I live in actually was in the news recently because there was a there was a three person stabbing. It was a mass casualty event. And all my expats in the area, we were very we had a very odd reaction to it, which was we all were like, "Yay!" But we were yay <laughs> not because of the stabbing, but because there were like 10 helicopters and everyone was on high alert. And we're like, "For three people, I lived in Oakland, there were three people stabbed within a mile of me every day." <laughs> like, I'm in. A, I'm in an area. This is national news. Everyone's talking mm-hmm. about how horrible this is. I'm like, oh, 
oh my gosh, I'm actually safe here. I'm actually like safe. It's, I don't understand. I hear blasts and stuff going off and it's fireworks. Like it's right. genuinely not guns. It's lovely. It, it's, it's a real thing expats deal with actually abroad is we all still, it, no matter how, I don't know anybody who's gotten over this. I still, every time I hear a firework, which is a lot, especially around New Year's, the Dutch love their fireworks. They go absolutely nuts. It's the best thing ever. I love it. But as an American, I still think gun. I, I'm just, it's wired into me. I'm going to think that forever. I was, you know, I, I grew up with Columbine and, you know, the early days of mass shooter drills and stuff like that. But it's just, the, like, even my Dutch friends, like, they'll, like, I'll be hanging with them. We'll be at a bar. So they will hear something and I'll look and they'll catch me check the exits. And they're like, God, you really do do that. I'm like, yeah, we do. It's what we're drilled into. And they're, they're just appalled by it. They're like, what is, huh? They're just so confused. So yeah, anyway, culture's fun. I love it here. I love the Netherlands. Come visit, hit me up. It's fabulous. I can give you all the recommendations. For I can give recommendations for the best, but don't come here for the food. Come here for everything but the food. What is a traditional dish there? Okay. <laughs> I have many thoughts on this. Okay, so they actually do very good pastries. And that's because of the proximity like Germany and Belgium and France. So you can get mm-hmm. a lot of really good pastries, but that's the thing. The Dutch are known for having boterhams or sandwiches for everything. Everything is boterham or brojes. And it's like, you know, like bread, ham, cheese, like not even in, in some mayo because they put mayo on everything. <laughs> but like a classic like Dutch dish, actually, I give you a quick story again from my home city because I have my new home city I love called Leiden. There's a dish called chutzpah. Not chutzpah. No, chutzpah. H-U-T-S-P-O-T. Chutzpah. And was coming out. Sorry. I know. So chutzpah is just carrots, onions, garlic, and I think that's it. Oh, and a little bit in potatoes. It basically just boil it all together and mash it up. That's it. That's it. And then like maybe I'll put a big meatball and some gravy on it. But that came actually because uh, the Netherlands started coming together as a country because Leiden was under siege. And William of Orange, which is uh, a French province, came to the Netherlands to save Leiden, who which was besieged by the Spanish. And as, you know, after Leiden was almost starved and the mayor actually offered his arm to the people to eat because they were starving, but then they came to their senses and didn't eat him. They were finally saved by William of Orange. They found in the Spanish camp a pot of chutzpah, and that became one of the national dishes that's eaten reasonably regularly. And now every year on October 3, be October, we have Leiden's onset, and it's basically a giant party where people run around in Spanish costumes and we pelt them with things and get very, very drunk and just celebrate the liberation of Leiden. It's a great party every year. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you have a hard stop in a few minutes or I can don't. I ask you a few more? Okay. All right. I'll, it'll just be like a few more. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was great about the Netherlands. I'd love to hear you spill the tea on if you had to give unfiltered advice, no sugarcoating to somebody who is either struggling in sales right now or is starting their career in sales. If you had to give unfiltered advice to them, what would it be? Uh, okay, I need to pick one or the other because I'd give different advice. Okay, let's do unfiltered advice for somebody struggling in sales. Okay, you're struggling in sales. It's probably not you. It's probably you're at. It's it's probably not you. It's probably the product or the company that you're at. So this is something a lot of people mess up is they think, oh, I'm struggling in sales here at this company. So I, I'm, I'm struggling in sales at Cisco, C-I-S-C-O, not S-Y-S-C-O. I'm struggling with sales at Cisco in tech. 
oh my gosh, I, I should get out of sales. No, you probably just shouldn't be at Cisco. Why don't you look at a much smaller company? So look at why you think you're struggling. Oh, I'm struggling because I can only do this much and the goals are realistic. Well, let's go to a company where the goals are a lot bigger, but you have way more freedom to go accomplish them. Or you need to go into a different ICP. I, I do really well with super nerds. I do really well with, with you know, technologies. I do really well with networking. With So I do really well selling into engineering, IT, stuff like that. I also do really well selling into leadership. So with C-suite stuff, I don't do as well selling into more softer sales stuff. So at that point, I do more systems and backend stuff. It's just my personality. I have a strong personality. I can scare a lot of marketers and HR people. So it might just mean you're in the wrong situation. So get creative and start looking outside your comfort zone because you're probably not, you probably, I think of it this way. I tell a lot of people, it's, you're probably just playing the wrong sport, right? So, hey, I tried running track, but oh, I suck at it. Well, great. So maybe don't do track. Go pick up volleyball. Go pick up baseball. Go pick up ping pong. Something doesn't require a ton of running. I hate running. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> there doesn't mean there's not something active I can do. That's the brutal thing is you're probably in the wrong, in the wrong field. Not in the wrong field of sales. There is a field for you, but you're probably in the wrong type of sales. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Marketers, that kind of applies too. I'd say yeah. think of, I mean, there's, there's obviously a ton of variables, but marketers, I'd say think about that too. What, like, what you want to market, is it, is it the same thing? And sometimes what you want to sell is not what you're the best at selling. There's a lot yeah. of people in tech that don't actually enjoy tech. They're in tech because they think it's cool versus like actually nerding out on it. So great. So what are you, you're passionate about real estate? Go into real estate. There's tons of tech there. There's tons of, you know, ways to get involved there to apply your skills. Like, what are you passionate about? You can go tie into something that you're interested in. So here's the disclaimer, though. It, 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 a lot of organizations aren't going, and maybe it's different with SDRs, but a lot of organizations aren't going to hire you unless you have 15 years experience in that one niche they're, they're in. <laughs> I don't Is think that's just, I, yeah. it, a lot of companies will put that in there, and I think that's stupid. For a lot of different reasons. But two, especially, and this is where I think it is a little bit different for salespeople. Salespeople, you should be able to sell yourself and your own experience. So like if you want to, if you've been in CyberSec and you're like, hey, I'm not gelling with IT. I'm not gelling with the CISOs. I think I want to get into HR. Great. Go talk about how your experience working with them, understanding the requirements and all this other stuff helps make you a great fit for selling mm-hmm. to HR. As a sales professional, you should be able to do that. And if, you, if you're struggling with it because you're burnt out, your brain's fried, whatever, reach out. I'm happy to help. Like not even like pitching, coaching or anything. Always happy to help with job pivots and stuff like that. I can do a lot of this stuff in my sleep. So I'm always happy to be like, hey, let me, you know, show me your resume and I can give you three ways you can spend it. You know, so just thinking about that perspective, you can use it. Will every company buy it? No, you don't need every company to buy it. And bluntly, if a company's not going to buy that, then you don't want to work there anyway, because they probably won't enable mm-hmm. you. So that's a great filter, actually, for toxic environments. Huzzah! Woo. So we mentioned people can reach out to you. I always like to wrap by giving our guests the opportunity to shout out whatever and everything they'd like to. So it could be anything you want. Where can people follow you? Uh, when's your show coming back? And anything else? 
So Across the Pond Over the Rainbow comes back in January. Probably the second week we haven't actually formally decided. We've got some things in the works. But coming back in January, you can follow, please follow Across the Pond and Over the Rainbow on LinkedIn for all the necessary and pertinent details we'll be announcing on there. You can also hit, hit me up on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place to find me right now. So just linkedin.com slash in slash Ashley Early spelled the other way, tying it back to mm-hmm. the very beginning. Um, early spelled the regular way, though. Early That's spelled easy. regular. I married into that. I didn't have a say <laughs> that. But. All right. Well, thank you so, so much for being here. I hope Evan isn't too mad at me for, for stealing you for an episode. Oh, I hope he is. He deserves it. <laughs> um, Keep him on yeah, his toes. No, he did- he don't own you either. He don't own you. We're 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 open podcasters. It's okay. <laughs> we communicate. Well, well, yeah. Thank you so much again for for being here, and thank you everyone for listening. I will see you for another episode of Lee to Be next time. Enjoying Lee to Be? Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews go a long way in supporting me. Thank you so much.